In this hour, we're going to be sharing on the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle of Moses is a type and a shadow of heavenly things. The tabernacle of God is a type and a shadow of heaven itself. The Bible says that Christ didn't enter into a tabernacle made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So Jesus entered into the true tabernacle. This is a copy of the real one in heaven. And so one of the great values of studying this tabernacle here is that it is a picture for us of the tabernacle in heaven. The tabernacle in heaven we don't know a lot about. In Isaiah, there's quite a lot spoken about the eternal kingdom of God. There's a lot spoken about the city of God, the Mount Zion. But there's not many details. And we don't see preparation in Isaiah. But with the tabernacle of Moses, we get a graphic picture of what heaven looks like. And so this has a tremendous value for the church. The reason is because it lays out each experience in sequence. And we can see that as God has restored the truth to the church, that he has restored it in exactly the same sequence as the Bible, as the tabernacle shows us. Therefore, when we speak about the kingdom of God, which is the picture of God's eternal purpose, and which is the picture of the most holy place in the tabernacle of Moses, we see that there are certain preparations necessary for the church to fulfill the purpose of God or to participate in the New Jerusalem. And so in these studies tonight, we're going to be sharing on the goal of the church. That which God purposed before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, it says, before the foundation of the world, God had an eternal purpose. And that purpose was to gather together everything, sum it up in Jesus Christ with a view to an administration or a government or a kingdom suitable to the fullness of times. And so the study of the tabernacle of God gives us the vision of where the church is going and what God purposed in his heart for the summation of all things. As we study the tabernacle from the viewpoint of the tabernacle of God, at first it comes to us as a shock because we have heard so long that if you are born again and you die tonight, you go to heaven. And the church has promoted that idea, which is true. It's not, it's not untrue, it's true. The problem is people haven't defined where in heaven they will go. And heaven is a big place. So the value of the tabernacle of Moses is it shows heaven in its entirety. Because the whole tabernacle speaks about heaven. This whole outer court speaks about heaven. And everything in there speaks about heaven. So in Revelation 21, he brings us to the conclusion of what was prophesied by this tabernacle. 
Or we could say the tabernacle of Moses was prophetic. It was prophesying to us of the real tabernacle in heaven. So in Revelation 21, he shows us the three parts of the tabernacle in heaven. And these three parts of the tabernacle in heaven correspond to the three parts in the tabernacle of Moses. So I want to read in Revelation 21, the first three verses. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. So the John the Revelator saw a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And those three parts are called the tabernacle of God. And the new Jerusalem is called the bride. <clears throat> so right away we find a distinction between the sections of the tabernacle of God. As they correspond to the tabernacle of Moses, <clears throat> we understand that the outer court speaks about the new earth. The holy place speaks about new heaven. And the most holy place speaks about the new Jerusalem. And we were saying that the whole tabernacle is where God dwells. But more specifically, he dwells in the sanctuary. But even more specifically, he dwells in the most holy place. Even more specifically, he dwells between the cherubim. He dwells over the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat between the cherubim. And this is where God speaks. So the most holy place now speaks to us of the New Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. Now if we just see that much, we'll begin to understand why the great preparation of the bride the Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her through the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and blameless. Now the church has handled that by saying as soon as you're born again, he wipes away all your sins and you're, you're perfected. You're perfect. The problem is there are so many scriptures where Paul says that he's laboring. He's warning every man and teaching every man with all diligence so that he might present every man perfect in Christ. In Hebrews 6, he said, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and this we shall do, he said, if God permits. So when we look at Revelation 21 and 22, we're seeing the final fulfillment of all the scriptures.
What God began in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he concludes in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. So as we study what God purposed in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, then we see how much that fulfilled all in, in Revelation 21 and 22. So as we study through all these scriptures now in Revelation 21 and 22, we'll see why the church has to be perfected. See, in Matthew uh, 5, verse 48, he says, Be ye therefore perfect, even our Father in heaven is perfect. But that scripture has been uh, analyzed and reanalyzed and sectioned, you know, taken apart. And they say, well, it doesn't mean perfect. It means complete or it means mature. So you can, you can manipulate that scripture all you want. But when you see the new Jerusalem, you know what perfection is. New Jerusalem is the perfect, the perfect fulfillment of everything God ex expected from man. So it's the new Jerusalem that meets God's need. Now, God is the Father. And because He's the Father, He wants a vast family of children. And He will have it. All the children of God, those who have never grown, those who have been just stayed in their child state, what we call the eternal childhood of the believer, they just never grow. And many times it's not their fault. It's just that they don't know. Because the church hasn't taught absolute growth or the essential aspect of growth for the church. And so the church has remained in the static condition, which we call childhood. But God has a place for everybody. The problem is everybody won't be in the same place. And so there will be many, many children of God on the new earth because they haven't grown. There are many people who are going to be in the new heaven. They have come to that perfection for their time period. For example, Jesus said, a man born a woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So we have to think, how could that be? John the Baptist was called from mother's womb. He served God, fulfilled the purpose of God. He did the will of God and died as a martyr. How could the least in the kingdom of God be greater than he? Where would John the Baptist be? As one of the greatest of the Old Testament saints... He could be this far because that veil was not torn yet when John lived. And so John could come that far. And he did. I'm sure he is there. Because Jesus said, there's none greater than John the Baptist. But those who are in the kingdom of God or in the new Jerusalem or in the most holy place, those who are of the bride of Christ 
are greater than John the Baptist. Because the least here is greater than the greatest there. They asked John the Baptist, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he said, no. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And so when we read in Revelation 19 and we see the bride perfected and being presented to the Lamb, we're going to see it are multitudes of guests at that wedding. But there's only one bride and only one bridegroom. I'm certain John the Baptist will be there. David will be there. Isaiah will be there. The Old Testament prophets will be there. And many, many born-again child of God who have come to that perfection but never, never entered in to the consecration and the commitment and the change that was necessary, the maturity that was necessary for them to be the bride of Christ. So let's begin by looking at Revelation 19 and we'll see this great multitude that are there. Now, Revelation 19, in verse 6, he said, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us, this great multitude said, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, singular, has made herself, singular, ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, or the righteousnesses of the saints. The experiential righteousness. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God, or be careful about these words. Be careful about these words. So now we have a picture. This is following the tribulation. And the scene is in heaven. And in heaven there is a great multitude, so many that you can't count them. Multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes. And they're crying, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast. Blessed are those who are invited. These are the true words of God. Be careful about those words. So at this great wedding, there are going to be multitudes in attendance. The wedding feast is going to be so many people there that it'll be, you won't be able to count them. But within that great multitude of invited guests, there's going to be one bride and one bridegroom. Now, the interesting thing about this bride is that a bride is a bride for one day. 
A wife is a wife for eternity. Is that right? But during one day's time, you, you speak about the bride. After that day, you talk about the wife, right? Because bride is for a day. Wife is for eternity. Or, in natural, as long as you live. So we see the bride in Revelation 19. Then we see a thousand-year span called the millennium. And then in Revelation 21, we find the wife. So how could there be a thousand years between the bride and the wife? The Bible says that a thousand years is as a day with the Lord. So, a thousand years of earth time is one day of heaven time. So, the wedding feast goes on one day in heaven, but a thousand years here on the earth. And then, at the end of a thousand years, the wife appears. Now, the interesting thing about this wife in Revelation 21 <clears throat> is that she doesn't look like a wife. She looks like a city. So he says in, in Revelation 21, verse 9, And one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then he goes on to explain the perfection of that city. The city is pure gold, which is transparent. It's made up of crystal clear jasper. The city has no opaqueness. It's like crystal. And then as we read, we'll see it, the glory of God shines right through that city to illuminate the nations of the new earth. I know these things come as a shock. You know, when we find there are different places in heaven. But you know, if you study the Bible, you find there are different places in hell also. <laughs> So it's not incredible there'd be different places in heaven. But the different places in heaven speak of a different level of growth. And I believe that if the church understood that it takes a certain amount of growth and perfection in order to be a part of that city, that they would give themselves freely to let God work in their life. They would consecrate themselves totally to do the whole will of God and give themselves to God to let God work in them everything that's necessary to prepare them for that city. Because when we take, speak about the eternal purpose of God, the city of God, the kingdom of God, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about forever and ever and ever and ever. And so it would be very disappointing 
to come to a childhood state and be in that childhood state for eternity. As we read through these scriptures, I think we'll see that after the new earth and new heaven, new Jerusalem are formed, that the former things don't come to mind. They're never remembered again. And so those who are on the new earth will be in a tremendous place. It, it'll be a glorious place. The odors and the beauty and the trees, it'll be like the Garden of Eden. Tremendous. And those who are in the new heaven, right by the temple of God, they'll be in a tremendous place also. But those who are in New Jerusalem will be one with him. See, the bride and the bridegroom come together and the two become one. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She is like him. She has grown up in all things into him. She has come to full maturity. And she has come to perfection necessary to be joined to Jesus Christ. And when we did the defects of the priest, we saw that the bride of the high priest is going to be his body. And the body of the high priest couldn't have defects. They couldn't have a short arm or six toes or six fingers or a disfigured face. They couldn't have a blind eye or a deaf ear or lame foot, a hand that doesn't work. So the bride of Christ comes to perfection. If she has defects, and all of us do have defects, Jesus healed all who came to him. So whatever defect we have, he will heal us if we come to him. And we all have many defects. But because of God's eternal purpose, because that which he purposed from before the foundation of the world, before the earth was, God's heart is to perfect a bride for his son, Jesus. <clears throat> Every true father wants to have a perfect bride for his son. And so God is going to have multitudes of children. And Jesus is going to have a bride. But the Holy Spirit... His desire is to lead worship and praise day and night, forever and ever. So that the praise and the worship in the temple of God will never cease. So in eternity future, God is going to have a vast family of children. The Holy Spirit is going to have a temple. And Jesus is going to have a bride. And the seat of the kingdom of God the, the place where the kingdom is, is the New Jerusalem. As we read these scriptures, we see that as the New Jerusalem, it says, and the throne of God shall be in it. And then we'll see who it is that is in that place and who it is who serve him day and night. Not day and night, day, because there is no night there. But then we'll see another group who serve God day and night in his temple. But in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple. So it has to be a different place. So as we examine the scriptures, we'll see 
that this is preserved for the bride. This is those who have come to perfection, who are like him in every way. They, they are joined to him to be one with him. Then there is a temple in heaven, which is before the throne of God, where there's going to be praise and worship and thanksgiving. Day and night go up. And then there's going to be a new earth where the children of God, multitudes upon multitudes of the children of God will be. But when the children of God on the new earth look up and they see that great shining thing in the sky, they'll think it's the sun shining in its brightness. But that'll be the new Jerusalem. (laughs) Because the light of God shines through the new Jerusalem to illuminate the nations of the new earth. And the lamp of that city is the lamb. But the significance of the city is it's transparent. It doesn't restrict the light of God from shining right through it. So that the lamb in the center of the throne, which is pictured by that Shekinah right there, the lamb in the center of the throne will be the source of light which shines right through the New Jerusalem. The Bible said the New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And there won't be any opaqueness there. The lamp of God will shine right through it. And it appears that what the people in new heaven and new earth will see is a sun, the glory. They'll see a glorious something up there. But I don't think they'll understand what they missed. The Bible says that he's going to wipe every tear from their eye. There may be a moment when they realize what they missed. Because I don't know why anybody in heaven would be crying. But he said he's going to wipe every tear from their eye. But then it says, the former things will not be remembered, and neither will they come to mind. So I think there will be a time when the people on New Earth will not realize that they missed the ultimate goal of God, the purpose of God. So one of the uh, objections that you find to these teachings One objection I just heard recently was that they said, you cannot make the New Jerusalem the bride because the New Jerusalem is just a city like Miami. Because the bride doesn't have dimensions. You can't make dimensions to the bride, which is made up of multitudes of those who have come to perfection. But what the Bible says is that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because the Lord God Almighty is its temple. So it's the Lord God who is the temple of it, but the bride is in the temple or the bride is in him or the two have become one. So when he says to take a gold measuring rod and measure the city and its foundations and so forth, we know the standard of measure for the New Jerusalem is gold. Everything has to come up to the gold standard. Now, in the outer court, those pieces were brass, 
which speaks about the judgment of God or the forgiveness of God or the mercy of God. But everything in New Jerusalem is brass, is, is gold and precious stone. In fact, there's no silver there. You don't find silver in New Jerusalem. Silver speaks about your redemption. In the tabernacle, the people were redeemed with silver. That was the, the price of the redemption, was to bring silver. The sockets were silver, which were foundational things. But in the New Jerusalem, also in the most holy place, in the holy place, there was no silver there. It was all gold. And so he said, to measure the city, in verse um, 15, and the one who spoke of me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. So everything there had to come up to the gold standard. <clears throat> but the dimensions of the city, that it says 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, is actually the dimension of the temple, not the dimension of the bride. It's the dimension of the temple in which the bride is. So that doesn't offend me. <clears throat> now, Genesis 1 and 2 was prophetic. It speaks to us about what was on God's heart. So God created man in his own image and likeness. He created him in a way so he could give him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over everything that crept upon the earth. And he told him to rule over the fish of the sea, rule over everything, and subdue it. The word in Hebrew means to guard it, to keep the enemies out. Then God made a woman for Adam, because he says not good for man to be alone. And so he made a woman. He made it out of the man took a rib out of her, out of him, and made a woman for him. Then brought the woman to him already perfected. She was already mature. She was already like him. I heard Ern Baxter preach over in Miami Beach one time. And he said that when Adam saw her, he said, Wow! I don't know. He said that's what the Hebrews said, but I don't, I don't read Hebrew, so I don't know if that's what it said or not. But anyway, she was like him. They fit together. Now, there was the first man and the first woman. Then we find that Jesus is the, is the last Adam. There was the first Adam and the first Eve. There was the first man and Jesus is the second man, not the third man. He's the second man. There's no more. He's just the second man. But he is the last Adam. So we have the first Adam and the last Adam. We have the first man and the last man, or the second man. We have the first Eve. But now we have the last Adam. It's not good for him to be alone either, is it? So now we have to have the last Eve. Because we see it in the purpose of God that God had this man and the woman. He gave all the authority to the man. And he transferred that authority to the woman. So that together they would rule over the whole earth. 
So in the fulfillment of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we find Revelation 21 and 22. And in Revelation 22, we find the last Adam and the last Eve, which is the bride, which is the new Jerusalem. So we find that what was on God's heart in the beginning comes to full circle. It comes to a full goal. It, it's fulfilled in, in Revelation 21 and 22. 